Hey, thanks for joining us. So uh, before I get started, I just wanna highlight a couple of those announcements. Uh, one is on Monday night, seven, seven o'clock, JP Moreland is gonna be with us live at our Monday night Q&A. And very excited about that because if you know anything about JP, he is a world famous philosopher, but not only is he an intellectual, he's really funny and he's really fun to be with. And we've had him here many times at Seacoast. And so uh, get your questions ready because he is one guy that can definitely answer them. So we're also gonna be doing something called Masterclass. And Masterclass is we're gonna help you master a book of the Bible. And along the way, Doyle and I are gonna be trying to master a few different skills as well. Um, they don't think we're gonna be mastering them, but we're gonna attempt and it's gonna be fun. And you're gonna learn as we go through the book of Ephesians that uh, these are letters and they're letters from Paul to the church of Ephesus. And I love uh, reading these letters because there's something special about letters. In fact, my kids, they've learned to write letters recently and they leave them around the house for my wife and I to find. And uh, so my wife has been keeping a collection of them. I wanted to share with you just a couple of our favorites so far. Uh, so my daughter wrote, uh, she's seven. She says, I wish I had a sister. And then continues on, what I would do with her. I would play American Girl doll. Sounds reasonable. Then she wrote, that was part one. She wrote part one. Then she wrote part two is, uh, I want a sister because I want to love it and babysit it, which I'm not sure if this baby will want to be called it, but that's fine. And then part three, she wanted to clarify. And she said, I would only like a baby sister. I think she says that because she already has two brothers and does not want a third. She also wrote us a, a note that said, I think you are hurting Ezra's feelings. Ezra's her younger brother. He's five. You need to be a lot nicer, please. And that was written to uh, her mother. And then this one was my favorite one, also written to mom. It says, hey, mom, we just folded all of our clothes and you're kind of being rude and unthankful. Thank you, from Ezra and Sienna. Uh, that one got quite a response out of mom. So we're gonna be uh, jumping in next week, starting our series where we're gonna be going through the book of Ephesians, but we're also gonna be doing daily devotionals on Ephesians, which you need to get signed up for. And then we're gonna have a Thursday night debrief and discussion, which you can jump in and get a group, uh, be in a group with. So make sure you sign up to be in a group as well. So lots of stuff that, that's gonna be starting, starting next week. Also, we thought we'd be, uh, it would be kind of fun for us to throw out a challenge. And we wanted to do a weekly challenge that you or your friends or your family can partake in. And, uh, and then we're going to show your video or picture next week in uh, service. And then we're gonna announce a winner. And so we're gonna try different challenges. So one of the things that's been popular around here is our youth just did a trick shot challenge. And it was with a basketball, basketball hoop, doing crazy shots. They showed a video. We wanna see your best trick shot. And so you can either do it with a basketball and a basketball hoop. You can do it with a piece of trash and a trash can. You can do it with a water bottle. Whatever you've got laying around, let's see what your best trick shot is. And make sure you either tag us on Instagram or Facebook or send it in to media at seacoastgrace.org. And we're going to be showing all of those. It should be really fun. And then announcing some winners along the way. So let's jump into today's message. We've been going through the book of Acts in a series we're calling Flip the Script. And it's all about how God has the ability to take things that are evil and turn them for good. And so we saw in Acts 1, that, 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 that's kind of the beginning of the church, that the Holy Spirit comes and Peter gets up and he gives this big message and thousands of people are saved. And then uh, that happens in one and two. And then in three, we talked about how John and Peter, that they were walking into the synagogue. They saw a man who was crippled since birth they end up healing him in Jesus' name. And there's kind of this big commotion that takes place. People are going, what just happened? This guy who's been sitting here for years is able to walk. 
Peter sees it as an opportunity for him to be able to give a sermon because he's a pastor. And so when there's a crowd, he's going to preach. And so he gets up there and he starts preaching and he tells them this. And I just want to give you kind of a, a little bit of an insight into what he said, because Peter really only has one message. And throughout Acts, he preaches the same message over and over again. And it sounds something like this. In Acts 3.13, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now, here's kind of the approach that he takes. He's going to go with the good news, bad news, and he's going to start with the bad news. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. <laughs> now, I... <laughs> Peter does not sugarcoat it. He steps up there in front of this crowd of people in the very city in which Jesus had just been crucified only months before this. And he says, you were waiting for the Messiah. God had promised you that he was going to send the savior of the world. And he arrived and you know what you did. You not only missed it, but you murdered him. He doesn't uh, pull any punches. He kind of calls it like it is. Now, I want to be clear here because what Peter is saying is not only did they kill him, the people who were standing there, because, you know, some of them were there, some of them were not. What he was saying is we killed him. We, as humans, we killed him because of our sin and our rebellion. He had to die on our behalf. And so insert yourself into this paragraph as well. Now, he continues on and he kind of brings the, the, the good news. He says this, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. Talking about the guy who was uh, crippled and then uh, miraculously healed. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can see. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, I'm making these big claims about Jesus. And I can make these claims because you've seen the authority and the power that I have when I use Jesus' name. And that same power that you saw heal this man here today was the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so then he goes on to tell them the rest of the story, how they were alienated from God and they need to repent and give their life over to Jesus. And that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge what you've done with him. Have you accepted him and followed him or have you rejected him? And he talks about the restoration of all things and how there will be eternal light for those who have followed Christ. And here's kind of the end of this scene. It takes place in Acts 4, 4. It says this, Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And so they hear this big message, not an easy message to hear, but they hear Peter's message and they say, you know what? What he's saying is true. What he's saying is right. And they begin to follow Jesus. Well, of course, this creates even more of a stir. You already have this guy being miraculously healed and now you have Peter doing this big sermon and then you all have all these people saying that they're gonna start worshiping and following this Jesus who was just crucified before all of them. And so you have this commotion taking place and the religious leaders see that there's, there's something going on with the crowd. And so they jump in and they try to figure out what's happening and they see that Peter and John are right in the middle of it and they're gonna to have to stop this because they don't like what they have to say that somehow there is this king of the Jews that has been resurrected and he is the Messiah and that you need to follow him. They're not about that message. And so they take the two, Peter and John, and they throw them into prison. And that's where they stay overnight. The next day they go before the religious leaders and they start to ask them about what has taken place. 
and about this Jesus that they are talking about. And as they were talking about this, Peter decides, you know what? I've got an audience. Now, they may be a hostile audience, and these might be the people, the very people that rejected Jesus, but I got an audience. And so he lays into another message, and he says, look, here's the deal. You are the ones who killed the author of life, the Messiah, which has to be pretty awkward because these are literally the people who put him to death. And so there's got to be a little bit of extra sting and edge there. And so he says, you are the ones who put him to death. Now, if I were standing next to Peter, like John is, and I'm hearing him say this to the people who just killed our leader, I'm probably starting to reconsider our friendship a little bit. Uh, Peter, I'm not sure if you're a, a safe guy to be around. I'm not sure if you've got it all together because you realize that these people could kill us at any moment here. And you're kind of rubbing it in and continuing to push forward. And instead of Peter backing off, here's how he kind of ends his big sermon. Controversial then and now. Here's what he says. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It just drops that bomb right there. That is a, a cultural and theological bomb. Is he saying, if you want to go to heaven one day, if you want to be saved of your sins, there is only one person who can do it, and that is Jesus. Now, you got to realize that they lived in a society very much like ours. It was a religiously pluralistic society, meaning everybody had their own gods, everybody worshiped their own, and you know what, you do you, I'm gonna do me. And so to stand up there in front of these Jewish leaders, but also in a Roman empire and say, not only were you wrong when you killed him, but all you who worship these pagan gods, you're wrong as well. He is offending both sides here. And yet he stands there in front of these people and he makes these huge and controversial claims. I thought about tackling this issue in the sermon and talking about how could Jesus be the only way and how, how, about, how about those who haven't heard and what about, and isn't, you know, most of this based on where you were born and how we, and those are all great questions. And so here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those questions and I'm going to give them to JP Moreland when he comes on Monday night. So tune in to that because we're going to be talking about things like that. All right, let's continue on. Uh, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is a great line. This, is a, this in itself is a message is we have and we could do a whole message just on this. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. But let me just kind of say just something briefly about this is people take notice when you've spent time with Jesus now, they may not be able to verbalize it like that. I mean, they may not even know why, but there's something different about you and I when we spend time with Jesus. I can see it in myself. I can see it in how I view the world and how I interact with people. Is when I stop and I take time to be with Jesus, things change. And you may not even be able to exactly pinpoint what is changing, but you're different and I'm different. And that's part of why we push so hard to get you guys to read the daily devotionals and get you into groups like Rooted so that you have some kind of structure and accountability so that you'll just spend time with Jesus and reading the scriptures. One of the things that my dad would always ask me growing up as I had struggled with anxiety and worry and fear is he would begin with three questions before we even talked about whatever issue I was, I was uh, afraid of or worried about. He would say, Cody, have you done the basics? Are you in prayer? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you giving? If you're not doing those things, how do you expect God to work if you're not willing to put in your, your part to do, to do what you've been called to do? 
So let's go do those things first and then we'll come back and we'll talk. And of course he knew that I wouldn't come back and have the same discussion because once I've prayed about it and I've gotten to the scriptures and I got my heart and my head right, it would probably resolve itself. So they tried to uh, silence these two and um, it wasn't working because it was very clear that Peter and John who stood right there had a man who had been healed. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. They couldn't deny it. There was nothing. And so they decided, here's what we're going to do. We can't deny that this man has been healed. So let's at least try to keep him quiet and, and get him out of here. Go, you can be free, but the condition is you have to stay silent about this Jesus character. It's causing too much drama around here. And here's their response as they're talking to the religious leaders. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking what we have seen and heard. I go, look, I'm going to have to stand before God. Now, who do you think is going to be a little bit more scary and intimidating? You or God? He has given us this message to go and to proclaim in the world. And you want us to stop. I'm much more afraid of God than I am of you. He says in verse 21, after further threats, they just let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And I love this next line. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I mean, not only could he walk after being crippled, he was over 40. Can you believe it? I didn't even know anything good could happen over 40. Okay, never mind. Anyway, so he continues on. And uh, the story, and I'll kind of summarize it for you, is once Peter and John are released, they go back to the community of believers and they tell them everything that had happened. And here is what happens next. And I want you to pause and I want you to think through how you would respond in this circumstance. They begin to pray. And if you were them, what would you start praying about in this moment? Just released from prison, just barely escaped with your life. These people are after you. They had just killed your leader. What would you be praying about? I know what you'd be praying about because it's what you pray about already. It's the same thing I pray about if I'm being honest. Lord, keep me and my family and my loved ones safe and healthy and strong. Because that's what I pray all the time. And that's what you pray as well. Because when we look at our prayer life, if yours is anything like mine, I'm always at the center of it. It's either me or the ones that I love that I am constantly praying about, especially during difficult circumstances. And so a question I think we have to wrestle with is, if God answered all the prayers that we prayed last year, he just said, you know what? Everything you prayed has been granted last year. My bet is that your life would change and probably the people around you whom you love would change, but the world would not look much different. And it's because we spend most of the time praying about ourselves, the ones that we love, and the things that we care about. Well, to the, towards the end of the prayer, this is something that Peter and John are praying for. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And you see this word throughout, throughout the scriptures is they want to be bold. Now, if you were talking to them, you would say, guys, you're bold, you're good. In fact, you barely escaped with your life. I don't think you need to be praying for boldness. Um, I think maybe you need to be praying for a little bit of sanity, but boldness is not something that you lack in. I would guess that boldness is something that doesn't make it into our prayers very often either. As we, especially here in the West, in America, we're not bold people. 
I don't think boldness would be something that would describe us culturally. I think we might be safe and cautious and agreeable, but bold, not so much. And here's how I know this is because you have insurance for your car and your house and maybe even your pet. I think we also would say that one of the things that we fear the most is being offensive in our culture, is making sure that we are politically correct and that we don't say something that steps on someone else's toes. And so we're constantly watching every word that we say. When we send our kids outside, it's with a helmet. And when they come inside, they have to have a helmet. When they go up the stairs, they have to have a helmet because we want to keep them safe at all times. I think this is also the attitude of many of our faiths is safe and cautious and agreeable is really how we would describe our walk with the Lord as well. Is we're not really out on the edge. We're not really pushing it. We're kind of safe. In fact, if we're being really honest with ourselves, not only are we safe, but we're, we're afraid. That's probably my biggest learning throughout this whole season. Is, yeah, I got a lot of opinions about a lot of things when it comes to politics. I got, yeah. But here's what I think the biggest thing that has stuck out to me during this whole season is, is just how afraid people are. There is an incredible amount of fear. Fear for people's health, fear for their financial security, fear for their future. People have become paralyzed by fear. And as Christians, I just don't see how, how this is acceptable. I'm not saying I don't struggle with it, but fears, it's not supposed to be something that, something that we give into. It's something that we fight against. It's something that continues to push us to grow our faith. And, and maybe you have something to be afraid of. Maybe you are facing um, some pretty big financial hurdles, or maybe there is some health issues. But for most of you, the large, large majority of you, you're not even facing anything. Your fears are, 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 are totally irrational. And yet here we are. We are full of fear and anxiety. Whether you have something to fear or your fears are irrational, I don't think that our faith would be described as bold. Here's how they end their prayer. Verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What they're saying is, God, Will you enable us? Will you give us the opportunity? Will you use me in some way to do something profound for you? What would this look like if you began adding this to your prayers? Is yeah, you can still pray for your friends and your family. I'm not saying don't pray for all that, but what if you added, Lord, would you use me to do something bold for you? Would you use me to bring change into my family, into our community, at work? Lord, would you do something that I could only do if you get involved? Something that's beyond that, anything that's within my capacity. Would you use me to do something significant? Now, it doesn't have to be significant in the world's eyes. It could be something small, but it still changes somebody's life. Now, I don't know that God's gonna show up and do something crazy and say, here's an opportunity to change the world, but here's what I do know is if you make a conscious effort to add this to your prayers, Lord, allow me to be bold for you. Allow me to be used by you. Here's what I do know what will happen is you will be much more aware of opportunities when they arise. 
Because what you are looking for oftentimes is what you're going to see. And so uh, if you ever have gotten a new car, whether it's brand new or new to you, it's funny how you start driving that car and then all of a sudden you see that same car everywhere as if, some, as if people had just bought that car the same time that you did. Well, of course that didn't happen. You're just more aware of it because you're looking for it. Same thing happens is if we begin to pray for opportunities to be bold, we're gonna see them. Verse 31 ends like this. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared with everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And there were no needy persons among them. So what happened? They asked for boldness and then God answered. And here's what he did. He gave them the opportunity to do two things, to share and to serve, to share and to serve. See, this is, this is kind of how the gospel works is we are, when we, when we are sent out, we do two things. When we're on mission, when we're living the Christian life, we Share the gospel message, which means that Jesus has died on your behalf. And if you follow him, you can be saved and you can be uh, forgiven of your sins. And then they went out and they found the needs of the people around them. And they met those needs with generosity. And so most of them ended up selling their belongings because the need was so great that they had to get rid of everything they had to be able to meet those needs. And so it's their willingness to be bold in those moments with sharing the gospel message and, and serving the people around them that ended up changing the world. And this, of course, is not the only time. We see this in Acts, but we see this throughout church history. In 165 and 251 AD, there were two huge plagues that came and devastated the Roman Empire. And about 25 to 30% of the entire empire ended up succumbing to this plague. And as this was taking over the empire, they quickly realized that the way that this disease would spread was through contact with other people. And so as soon as they realized this, the rich and the, the, the influential and the doctors, they all left the city that were crowded with these people so that they wouldn't get sick. They went out in the countryside and they just abandoned everybody into the cities um, who, who, who was unable to either get out or who was already sick. And everybody left except for one group, the Christians. The Christians were the only ones that stayed behind and they began caring for the sick, not only their own friends and family and neighbors, but just the people that they came across. People who had, they had nothing in common with as far as religion went. These people were pagans and yet they would bring them into their homes, oftentimes at their, their own peril because they would lose their lives as they contracted the disease. But what happened was, as Christians began to care for more people, they began to recover. Because they found out they were twice as likely to recover if someone was there to give them food and water and care for them. And so people started to recover. And as people started to recover, whether they were Christians before or not, when they came out of this, they said, I want to be a part of that movement because it's those people that actually risk their life for me. And so I want to follow this Jesus that they follow. And it was because of these acts of kindness, this generosity, this self-sacrifice that people began to come to Christ because of what they had seen in his followers. Their incredible boldness and generosity ended up turning the world upside down within just a few hundred years. What was a, a pagan empire became a Christian empire. It's kind of funny, there's one uh, emperor along the way that as he saw things were changing and more and more were, people were becoming Christians, he, 
he still wanted to be a pagan ruler. And so he tried to revive paganism and his name is Julian and it just wasn't happening. He would build these huge, beautiful temples where they could come and they could worship these pagan gods and nobody was coming. They were all going to church and here's how he explained why the movement wasn't taking off. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Not even the power and the might of the Roman rulers could defeat Christianity. Not because they had these riches, not because they were influential, but because they simply loved and served the people around them. And it ended up changing the world. It ended up changing not only the Roman Empire, but it ended up changing the world that you and I live in. We're benefactors of this this generosity and this love that they've had. And so I think if we look back on church history and we see all the incredible acts of, of kindness and generosity, and then we look forward to what the church is going to look like and how they view us. Because one day we will be in church history. They will look back on us. And here is my fear. There is no way they're going to look at us, our generation, and say, now they were bold. I'm afraid that their reaction may not be positive. They may not look kindly upon us, not because we're not good people, not because we don't love Jesus, but because boldness is not something that would describe us. It's ironic that we live in probably the time and place in church history that we have the least amount of things to fear and yet we're the most afraid. We have the most resources at our disposal and yet we are making the least impact. See, I understand that we're in a, uh, in a tough place right now. That the government has told us that the way that we can help and the way that we can serve is to stay isolated, to stay at home, to stay away from other people because we want to slow down this, the spread of this disease and we want to make sure that we keep those who are vulnerable safe. And so I understand that we want to be, we want to be good neighbors and good citizens And so we're kind of stuck. And yet that doesn't excuse us from being bold. Is yet there may be some obstacles that are in our way. Yes, there always is going to be. But that does not excuse us from being bold people for Christ. And so I think we have to start to not only, well, let me say this. I think we got to do two things. I think the first thing that we have to do is what they did here in Acts is we have to ask God for an opportunity and a spirit of boldness. We have to step up and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? What does it look like for me to be bold where I'm at? Whatever that looks like, whatever the context you find yourself in, I can still be bold because I can be bold with the, the, the message by sharing with people and I can be bold by serving them, however that might look. And there's people around here who are figuring it out. We do the food drive, we're collecting food, we're giving, we do deliveries every Friday to people who are shut in. We do thinking, we do tons of, we do prayers. We've prayed for over 7,000 families by calling them and saying, saying, hey, how can I help you? And that's the second thing, is we gotta be ready, willing, and actively looking for places in which we can be bold and we can share and serve. One of the learnings that we've had as a church throughout this season is we are responsible for actively seeking out people who are in need. It's not enough just to passively be sitting by and say, hey, if you need anything here, we are, we're available. That's not enough. We have to reach out to people and say, how can I help you? And so kind of the phrase that we've been kind of thinking about here is it's not just about outreach, it's about reaching out. 
And that's, I think, something that we can do as a church is we can reach out. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. And you just reach out and say, hey, do you need anything right now? And if we're listening for those opportunities, maybe it's an emotional, a physical, financial, relational, it's a spiritual need that they have, we're going to be ready and willing and able to eagerly meet that need. Let me end with this. I had an interesting phone call this week. It's a, uh, it actually started off with a text message. And as text message, it says, hey, it's such and such. Do you remember me? We met at, and we had done a project uh, together about six months ago. And I did remember him. In fact, I remember very distinctly a conversation we had about faith and about hope and about purpose. And, and then, you know, we had lost, lost touch and I hadn't heard from him since. And then randomly, it was on a Sunday morning, I get a text message. Hey, do you remember me? If so, can you please pray for me? Pray for you? Yeah, of course I can. Anything specific that I can pray for you? Well, actually, is there any way we can talk on the phone? And so we end up jumping on a phone call together and, hey, you know, I'm just going through a really tough season and I'm just not really sure how to get through it. And, and so I ended up just kind of counseling him through it and praying with him. And at the end of that conversation, I just thought, how bizarre is that? Someone whom I don't really know, he had to ask if I remember him, calls me in a time of need. It's not because I'm special. I'm, no, I'm a nobody. I think it's because there's something different about us. That there is something, as, as the world has no answers, as this person is going, the doctors, they don't know what to do. This is the last time. She says she's finally done. My kid has gone off the rails, and I don't know what to do. You know who they call? They call us. Not because we're so smart, not because we're so witty, or we have it all together, because we have something that nobody else has. We have hope. We have a message, and we are available for those people who are in need. And so whatever that looks like from where you're at, my prayer is that you would add this to your prayers, is that you would ask God to give you the opportunity to be bold so that you can share the message and serve those who are in need. Let's pray. Lord God, during this season, you are doing something, and we just want to be on board with whatever it is that you're doing. You're trying to teach us something. You're trying to to enable us to be able to do something to impact people's lives. And so, Lord God, we don't want to miss that. We want to make sure that we are fully aware and attentive and eager and ready to go out and to be bold for you, Lord God. And so however you, however you want to use us, our answer is yes. Just show us the way. We love you, Lord. Amen.